0: Imagine, if you can, a small room, hexagonal in shape like the cell of a bee. It is lighted neither by window nor by lamp, yet it is filled with a soft radiance. There are no apertures for ventilation, yet the air is fresh. There are no musical instruments, and yet, at the moment that my meditation opens, this room is throbbing with melodious sounds. An armchair is in the centre, by its side a reading desk, that is all the furniture, and in the armchair that sits a swaddled lump of flesh, a woman, about five feet high, with a face as white as fungus. It is to her that this little room belongs. An electric bell rang. The woman touched the switch, and the music was silent. I suppose I must see who it is, she thought, and set her chair in motion. The chair, like the music, still was worked by machinery, and it rolled her to the other side of the room, where the bell still rang importunely. Who is it? she called. Her voice was irritable, for she had been interrupted often since the music began. She knew several thousand people in certain directions. Human interactions had advanced enormously. But when she listened to the receiver, her white face wrinkled into smiles. and She said, Very well, let us talk. I will isolate myself. I do not expect anything important will happen in the next five minutes, for I can give you fully five minutes, Kuno. Then I must deliver my lecture on music during the Australian period. She touched the isolation knob, so no one else could speak to her. Then she touched the lighting apparatus, and the little room was plunged into darkness. Be quick, she called, her irritation returning. Be quick, Kuno, for here I am in the dark, wasting my time. But it was a fully 15 seconds before the round plate that she held in her hand began to glow. A faint blue light shot across it, darkening to purple, and presently she could see the image of her son, who lived on the other side of the earth, and he could see her. Kuno, how slow are you? He smiled gravely. I really believe you enjoy dawdling. I've called you before, mother, but you're always busy or isolated. I have something particular to say. What is it, dearest boy? Be quick. Why could you have not sent it by pneumatic post? Because I prefer saying oh, such a thing. I want... Well, I want you to come and see me. Vasti watched his face in the blue plate. But I can see you, she exclaimed. What more do you want? I want to see you not through the machine, said Kuni. I want to speak to you, not through the wearisome machine. Oh, hush, said his mother, vaguely shocked. You mustn't say anything against the machine. Why not? One mustn't. You talk as if a god has made the machine, cried the other. I believe that you pray to it when you're unhappy. Men made it, do not forget that. Great men, but men. The machine is much, but it's not everything. I see something like you in this plate, but I do not see you. I see something like you through this telephone, but I do not hear you. That is why I want you to come. Pay me a visit so we may meet face to face and talk about the hopes that are in my mind. She replied that she could scarcely spare the time for a visit. The airship barely takes two days to fly between me and you. I dislike airships. Why? I dislike seeing the horrible brown earth and the sea and the stars when it's dark. I get no ideas in the airship. I do not get them anywhere else. What kind of ideas can the air give you? He paused for an instant. Do you not know four big stars that form an oblong and three stars close together in the middle of the oblong, hanging from these three stars, three other stars? No, I do not. I dislike the stars. But did they give you an idea? How interesting. Tell me. I had an idea they were like a man. I don't understand. The four big stars were the man's shoulders and knees. The three stars in the middle were like the belts that the man wore, and the three stars were hanging like a sword. A sword? A sword? Men carried swords about them to kill animals and other men's. It does not strike me as a very good idea, but certainly original. When did it come to you first? In the airship. He broke off, and she fancied he looked sad. She could not be sure, for the machine did not transmit nuances of expression. It only gave a general idea of people. An idea that was good enough for all practical purposes, Vashti thought. The imponderable bloom declared by discreditive philosophy to be the actual essence of Uh, interaction was rightly ignored by the machine just as the imponderable bloom of the grape was ignored by the manufacturers of artificial fruit something good enough had long been accepted by race the truth is he continued that i want to see the stars again they're curious stars i want to see them not from the airship but from the surface of the earth as our ancestors did thousands of years ago i want to visit the surface of the earth she was shocked again mother you must come if only to explain to me what is the harm of visiting the surface of the earth. No harm, she replied, controlling a sense. But no advantage. The surface of the earth is only dust and mud. No advantage. The surface of the earth is only mud. No life remains on it. And if you would need a respirator, or the cold of the outer air would kill you. One dies immediately in the outer air. I know, of course. I shall take all precautions. And besides, well, she considered, and chose her words with care. Her son had a strong temper, and she wished to dissuade him from the expedition. "'It is contrary to the spirit of our age,' she asserted. "'What do you mean by that? Contrary to the machine?' "'In a sense, but...' The image in his blue page fainted. "'Kuno?' He had isolated himself. For a moment, Vashti felt lonely. "'Then she generated the light, and the sight of her room, flooded with the radiance and studded with electric buttons, revived her. There were buttons and switches everywhere.' buttons to call for food, for music, for clothing. There was a hot bath button, the pressure of which the basin of imitation marble rose out of the floor, filled to the blim with a warm, decolourised liquid. There was a cold bath button, there was a button that produced literature, and there were, of course, the buttons by which she communicated with her friends. The room, though it contained nothing, was in touch with all the things she cared about in the world. Vashti's next move was to turn off the isolation switch, and all the accumulations of the last three minutes burst upon her. The room was filled with the noise of bells and speaking tubes. What was the new food like? Could she recommend it? Has she had any ideas recently? Might one tell her ideas? Would she make an engagement to visit the public nurseries at an early date, say one day this month? To most of these questions, she replied with irritation, a growing quality in that accelerated age. She said that the new food was horrible and she could not visit the public nurseries to the oppressive engagements that she had new, no ideas of her own, but she'd just been told one, that four stars with three in the middle was like a man. She doubted there was much in it. Then she turned off her correspondence for time, for it was time to deliver her lecture on Australian music. The clumsy, six, the clumsy system of public gatherings had long since been abandoned. Neither Vashti nor her audience stirred from their rooms. Seated in her armchair, she spoke, while they in their armchairs heard her fairly well, and they saw her fairly well. She opened with a humorous account of music in the pre-Mongolian epoch, and she went on to describe the great outburst of song that followed the Chinese conquest. Remote and primeval were the methods of Yi Sang-so and the Brisbane School. Yet she felt, she said, that the study of them might repay the musicians of today. They had freshness. They had, after all, ideas. Her lecture, which lasted 10 minutes, was well received, and at the, and its conclusion, she and many of her audience listened to a lecture on the sea. There were ideas to be got from the sea. The speaker had donned a respirator and visited it lately. Then she fed, talked to many friends, had a bath, talked again, and summoned her bed. The bed was not to her liking, it was too large, and she had a feeling for a small bed. Complaint was useless, for beds were the same dimension all over the world, and to have made an alternate size would have involved vast alterations in the machine. Vashti isolated herself. It was necessary, for neither night nor day existed under the ground, and reviewed all that had happened since she summoned her bed last. Ideas? Scarcely any. Events? Was Kuno's invitation an event? By her side, on the little reading desk, was a survival of the days of old. One book. It was the book of the machine. In it there were instructions against every possible contingency. If she was hot or cold, or at loss for word, she went to the book, and it told her which button to press. The central committee published it. In accordance with the growing habit, it was richly bound. Sitting up in bed, she took it reverently in her hands. She glanced agra- she glanced around the glowing room, as if one might be watching her. Then, half ashamed, half joyful. She murmured, O oh machine, O oh machine! and raised the volume to her lips. Thrice she kissed it, once inclined her head, and thrice she felt the delirium of acquiescence. Her ritual performed, she turned to page 1367, which gave the times of the departure of the airships from the island in the southern hemisphere, under whose soil she lived, to the island in the northern hemisphere, under which lived her son. She thought, I do not have the time. She made the room dark and slept. She awoke and made the room light. She ate and exchanged ideas with her friends, and listened to the music and attended lectures. She made her room dark and slept. Above her, beneath her, and around her, the machine hummed eternally. She did not notice the noise, for she had been born with it in her ears. The earth, carrying her, hummed as it sped through silence, turning her now to the invisible sun, now to the invisible stars. She awoke and made her room light. Kuno! I will not talk to you, he answered, until you come. Have you been on the surface of the earth since we spoke last? His image faded. Again she consulted the book. She became very nervous and lay back in her chair, palpitating. Think of her as without teeth or hair. Presently she directed the chair to the wall and pressed an unfamiliar button. The wall swung apart slowly. Through the opening she saw a tunnel that curved slightly so that its goal was not visible. Should she go to her son? Here was the beginning of the journey. Of course, she knew all about the communication system. There was nothing mysterious in it. She would summon a car, and it would fly her down to the tunnel until it reached a lift that communicated with the airship station. The system had been used for many, many years, long before the universal establishment of the machine. And of course, she had studied the civilization that immediately preceded her own the civilization that had mistaken the functions of the system and had used it for bringing people to things instead of for bringing things to people. Those funny old days when men went for change of air instead of changing the air in their rooms. And yet she was frightened of the tunnel. She had not seen it since her last child was born. It curved, but not quite as she remembered. It was brilliant, but not quite as brilliant as the lecturer suggested. Vashti was seized with the terrors of direct experience she shrank back into her room, and the wall closed up again. Kuno, she said, I cannot come see you. I'm not well. Immediately, an enormous apparatus fell on her from the ceiling. A thermometer was automatically laid on her heart. She lay powerless. Cool pads soothed her forehead. Kuno had telegraphed t- to her doctor. So the human passion still blundered up and down in the machine. Vashti drank the medicine the doctor projected into her mouth, and the machinery retired into the ceiling the voice of Kuno was heard asking her how she felt. Better. Then, with irritation. But why don't you come to me instead? Because I cannot leave this place. Why? Because, any moment, something tremendous may happen. Have you been on the surface of the earth yet? Not yet. What is it, then? I will not tell you through the machine. She resumed her life. But she thought of Kuno as a baby. His birth, his removal to the public nurseries, her own visit to him there... His visits to her, visits which stopped when the machine had assigned him a room on the other side of the earth, parents, duties of, said the Book of the Machine, cease at the moments of birth. P422327483. True. But there was something special about Kuno. Indeed, there'd been something special about all of her children. And after all, she must brave the journey if he desired it. And something tremendous might happen. What did that mean? The nonsense of a youthful man, no doubt, but she must go. And she pressed the unfamiliar button. Again, the wall swung back and she saw the tunnel that curves out of sight. Clasping the book, she rose, tottered onto a platform and summoned the car. Her room closed behind her. The journey to the Northern Hemisphere had begun. Of course, it was perfectly easy. The car approached, and in it she found armchairs exactly like her own. When she signalled, it stopped, and she tottered onto the lift. One other passenger was in the lift, the first fellow creature that she had seen face-to-face for months. Few travelled these days, for thanks to the advance in science, Earth was exactly alike all over. Rapid interaction, from which the previous civilization had hoped so much, had ended up by defeating itself. What was the good of going to Peking when it was just like Shrewsbury? why he returned to Shrewsbury when it'd be all like Peking. Men seldom moved their bodies. All unrest was concentrated in the soul. The airship service was a relic from the former age. It was kept up because it was easier to keep it up than to stop it or diminish it, but it now far exceeded the wants of the population. Vessel after vessel would rise from the volumetric trees of Rye or from Christchurch, I use the antique names, and would sail into the crowded sky, and would draw up at the wharves of the south, empty. Mm. So nicely adjusted with the system, so independent of meteorology, that the sky, whether calm or cloudy, represented a vast kaleidoscope, whereupon the same patterns periodically recurred. The ship on which Vashti sailed started now at sunset, now at dawn, but always it passed above the Rias. It would name the ship that served between the Helsingfors and the Brazils, and every third time it surmounted the Alps, the fleet of Palmero would cross its track behind. Night and day, wind and storm, tide and earthquake, impeded man no longer. he had harnessed Leviathan. All the old literature, with its praise of nature and its fear of nature, rang false as the prattle of a child. As Vashti saw the vast flank of the ship, stained with exposure to the outer air, her horror of direct experience returned. It was not quite like the airship in the cinematography, For one thing, it smelt, not strongly or unpleasantly, but it did smell. And with her eyes shut, she could have known that a new thing was close to her. Then she had to walk to it from the lift, and had to submit to glances from other passengers. The man in front dropped his book, no great matter, but it disquieted all of them. In the rooms, the book was dropped, the floor raised it mechanically, but the gangway to the airship was not so prepared, and the sacred volume lay motionless. They stopped. The thing was all foreseen. And the man, instead of picking up his property, felt the muscles of his arm to see how they failed him. Then one actually said a direct utterance, we shall be late, and they trooped on board. Vashti treading on the pages as she did. Inside, her anxiety increased. The arrangements were old-fashioned and rough. There was even a female attendant, to whom she would have to announce her wants during the voyage. Of course, a revolving platform ran the length of the boat. She was expected to walk from it to her cabin. Some cabins were better than others. She did not get the best. She thought the attendant had been unfair, and spasms of rage shook her. The glass valves had closed. She could not go back. She saw at the end of the vestibule, the lift in which she ascended, going quietly up and down, empty. Beneath those corridors of shining tiles were rooms. Tier below tier, reaching far into the earth. In each room there sat a human being, eating or sleeping or producing ideas. And buried deep in the hive was her own room. Vashti was afraid. Oh, machine, she murmured, and caressed her book, and was comforted. Then the sides of the vestibule appeared to melt together, as do the pastures that we see in dreams. The lift vanished. The book that had been dropped slid to the left and vanished. Polished tiles rushed by like a stream of water There was a slight jar, and the airship, issuing from its tunnel, soared above the waters of a tropical ocean. It was night. For a moment, she saw the coast of Sumatra, edged by the phosphorescence of waves, and crowned by lighthouses, still sending forth their disregarded beams. These also vanished, and only the stars distracted her. They were not motionless, but swayed to and forth above her head thronging out of one lot skylight into another, as if the universe and not the airship was careening. And, as often happens on clear nights, they seemed now to be in perspective. Now on a plane, now piled tier above tier into the infinite heavens, now concealing infinity, a roof limiting forever the venitions of man. In either case, they seemed intolerable. Are we to travel in the dark? Called the other passengers angrily, and the attendant, who had been careless, generated the light and pulled down the blinds of pliable metal. When the airships had been built, the desires to look direct at things still lingered in the world, hence the extraordinary number of skylights and windows, and the proportionate discomfort of those who were civilized and refined. Even in Vashti's cabin, one star peeped through a floor in the blind, and after a few hours' uneasy slumber, she was disturbed by an unfamiliar glow, which was the dawn. Quick as the ship sped westwards, the earth had rolled eastwards quicker still, and had dragged back Vashti and her companions towards the sun. Silence could prolong the night, but only for a little, and those high hopes of neutralising the earth's diurnal rotation had passed, together with hopes that were possibly higher. To keep pace with the sun, or even upstrip it, had been the aim of civilisation preceding this, Racing aeroplanes are built for this purpose, capable of enormous speed, and steered by the great intellects of the epoch. Around the globe they went, round and round, westward, westward, round and round, amid humanity's applaud, in vain. The globe went eastward quicker still, horrible accidents occurred, and the committee of the machine, at that time rising into prominence, declared the pursuit illegal, unmechanical, and punishable by homelessness. Of homelessness, more will be said later. Doubtless the committee was right, yet the attempt to defeat the sun aroused the last common interest that our race experienced around heavenly bodies, or indeed about anything. It was the last time that men were compacted by thinking of a power outside the world. The sun had conquered, and yet it was the end of our spiritual dominion. Dawn, midday twilight, the zodiacal path touched neither men's lives nor their hearts, and silence retreated into the ground to concentrate herself on problems that she was certain of solving. So when Vashti found her cabin invo- invaded by a rosy finger of life, she was annoyed and tried to adjust the blind. But the blind flew up together and she saw through the skylight small pink clouds swaying against the background of blue. and the sun crept higher, its radiance entered direct brimming down the wall like a golden sea. It rose and fell with the airship's motion just as waves rise and fall but it advanced steadily as the tide advances. Unless she was careful, it would strike her face. A spasm of horror shook her, and she rang for the attendant. The attendant, too, was horrified, but she could do nothing. It was not her place to mend the blind. She could only suggest that the lady should change her cabin, which she accordingly prepared to do. People were almost exactly alike all over the world. But the attendant of the airship, perhaps owing to her exceptional duties, had grown a little out of common. She had often to address passengers with direct speech, and it had given her a certain roughness and originality of manner. When Vashti swerved away from the sunbeams of the cry, she behaved barbarically. She put her hand to steady her. How dare you, exclaimed the passenger. You forget yourself. The woman was confused, and apologised for not having let her fall. People never touch one another. The customer had come obsolete, owing to the machine. Where are we now? asked Vashti haughtily. We are over Asia, said the attendant, anxious to be polite. Asia? You must excuse my common way of speaking. I've got into the habit of calling places over which I pass by their unmechanical names. Oh, I remember Asia. The Mongols came from it. Beneath us, in the open air, stood a city that was once called Simla. Have you ever heard of the Mongols in the Brisbane school? No. Brisbane also stood in the open air those mountains to right let me show you them she pushed back a metal blind the main chain of the himalayas was revealed they were once called the roof of the world those mountains you must remember that before the dawn of civilization there seemed to be an impenetrable wall that touched the stars it will suppose that no one but the gods could exist above their summits how we have advanced thanks to the machine how we have advanced thanks to the machine said vashti how we advanced, thanks the machine, echoed the passenger who dropped his book the night before, was standing in the passage. And the white stuff in the cracks? What is it? I've forgotten its name. Cover the windows, please. These mountains give me no ideas. The northern aspect of the Himalayas was in deep shadow. On the Indian slope the sun had just prevailed. The forest had been destroyed during the literature epoch for the purpose of making newspaper pulp. But the snows were awakening to their morning glory, and the clouds still hung on the breasts of Kimjunka. In the plain was seen the ruin of cities, with diminished rivers creeping by their walls, and besides of these were sometimes signs of vomitries, marking the cities of today. Over the whole prospect, airships rushed, crossing the intercrossing with credible aplomb. <sighs> riding nonchalantly, they desired to escape the perturbations of the lower atmosphere and to traverse the roof of the world. We have indeed advanced, thanks to the machine, repeated the attendant, and hid the Himalayas behind a metal blind. The day dragged wearily forward. The passengers sat each in his cabin, avoiding each other with an almost physical repulsion and longing to be once more under the surface of the earth. There were eight or ten of them, mostly young males, sent out from the public nurseries to inhabit the rooms of those who had died in various parts of the earth, the man who dropped his book was on the homeward journey. He had been sent to Sumatra for the purpose of propagating the race. Vashti alone was travelling by her private will. At midday, she took the second glance of the earth. The airship was crossing under another range of mountains, but she could see little owing to clouds. Masses of black rock hoovered below her and merged indistinctly into grey. The shapes were fantastic. One of them vaguely resembled a prostate man. No ideas here, murmured Vashti, and hid the Caucasus behind a metal blind. In the evening, she looked again. They were crossing a golden sea, in which lay many small islands in one small peninsula. No ideas here, and hid Greece behind a metal blind.